1: Live in Nashville, 6th and Peabody, Yeehaw Beer, and Old Smoky Moonshine. Hitting the headlines, and then Danon Hughes will join us, the color analyst for the Kansas City Chiefs Radio Network. He'll join us in 20 minutes. We'll talk all things Chiefs, Bengals, and the Mahomes injury. Nick Saban's replacing both coordinators. This will be the fifth time since Saban has been there over the last, what, 17 years that he will be replacing, hiring, elevating... Two new people to offensive and defensive coordinator. Pete Golding left to go to Ole Miss. And, Chad, today we learned that Bill O'Brien is the new offensive coordinator for the New England Patriots. He's headed back to New England, uh, where he once worked with Bill Belichick and started there in, what, 2007 through 2011, where his tenure ended as offensive coordinator – they went thirteen and three and made the Super Bowl. Didn't win the Super Bowl that year, but this is this exact example of replacing the coordinators is what Saban does so well that everyone else would struggle with, and that's this is the one area that we haven't seen Georgia have to go through year after year. And Saban elevates from within. Well, the most common names, uh, the most obvious names that are just jump out to me with you look at the staff or of guys who have the play-calling background in both. Jeremy Pruitt's there. Of course, he's got the NCAA issues from Tennessee. And Derek Dooley's there, who also has play-calling experience. They'll go for the outside, right? Like that, you hear those names and I'm thinking, eh, they, they probably hire from the outside. But the Pruitt aspect of it makes... Total sense, given the scheme, given the background that they have together, and the fact that Pruitt was there.
2: I don't think you're going to find an Alabama fan that would not love Jeremy Pruitt as defensive coordinator. That was the immediate scuttlebutt. My Alabama friends, everyone on social media, immediately just said, no-brainer, bring Jeremy Pruitt back, let him be the defensive coordinator. There were some great times with Jeremy Pruitt as defensive coordinator at both Alabama, Georgia— At Florida State. Guy's a good defensive coordinator. He's really good at working for Nick Saban. I think that's one thing he's shown. He was not good as a head coach and made a ton of mistakes in Knoxville, but a really good defensive coordinator. Now, it's not official yet, but it certainly looks like, based on what Tennessee turned over to the NCAA, he's getting a show cause. So Bama would have to show cause for him to have a job in the NCAA. So I don't think that's likely. Derek Dooley's interesting. He had a good season or two at Missouri. So I think this was pre-Josh Heupel at Missouri, or maybe right when he left for UCF. He had a really good season. Um, They had a great quarterback at the time also, um, Drew. Drew Locke. Thank you. Drew Locke, who was with the the Broncos. Um, But I don't think that's the direction he goes. I'm always interested with Saban, and and you're right, by the way. Saban does a lot of things better than any other coach in college football but this may be the top one of coaching staff turnover and finding the right guy and keeping the ship sailing without problems. He's also big on, he'll bring guys back. Guys will leave angry. Guys will take a lesser role with another program just to get out. And when they want to come back, he doesn't hold grudges. If you're a good coach and you can coach for him and help him succeed, he'll bring anyone back. I think about Lance Thompson as an assistant is an example of that. And there's, there's other examples too. So he's willing to bring guys back. But with this one, and by the way, Ed Ogeron is a great example of someone who could not sustain it. Right? They had great success, lost both coordinators, and they went down immediately. Um, George is a good example of someone who's not had to deal with that yet. You're right. Well, in a... in a And plus, because they had Will Muschamp that was just fired, that was on the we staff. We don't as know A-List, yet. They Unless
1: could, they could elevate. We don't know yet, but Clemson's also in this book. Clemson, though, They've made great hires, but they've they're turning over those positions and for the first time in a while, their coordinators are becoming head coaches relatively quickly.
2: Clemson went big in what I think was very smart of of Dabo. This one year of not necessarily being Clemson, I mean, they're still in a New Year's Six game. They win the ACC. It wasn't bad, but he just elevated guys on his staff when both of his coordinators left and those coordinators there for a long time having a lot of success. And that didn't work out the way he wanted. Brandon Streeter was the offensive coordinator. He's gone. And, you know, he brings in Garrett Riley. I think that's really smart. You know, outsider's perspective and freshening things up a bit. Does Saban go back to someone? Here's an example that I've seen floating around. Dan Enos, a guy who's been offensive coordinator at Alabama that Nick Saban loves. He just took the job at Arkansas. All right? He just went to Arkansas after they lost Kendall Bryles. Does Dan Enos hopscotch and then go to Alabama if Nick Saban comes calling? I doubt it.
1: I don't I think they would know he would know not to take the Arkansas gig. If he if he if, knew Bill
2: O'Brien was yeah, leaving and he had
1: it. We've been discussing Bill O'Brien to New England for three weeks.
2: Yeah I, th- I think you're probably right. But I bring up that example because it's either going to be someone he's worked with before and he's familiar with or He's just looking out at the college football horizon and he admires offenses like mm-hmm. anyone else and says, I want to get someone like this. You know, this is what we've had problems with. I think about their loss to Tennessee, you know, and, and Josh Heupel. Is he thinking, I wanna get someone who knows how to do this? Just an example. If Alex Golish didn't take the mm-hmm. USF job, would Nick Saban go and try to spend a ton of money to pull him away from Josh Heupel and say, You're gonna call every play now? Let's run some form of this offense here. I I don't know. I'm just asking the question, is it going to be someone Saban knows on both sides of the ball? I think defensively it's going to be someone he knows because he's a defensive guy. So it's going to be someone he's either worked with or he knows their scheme well, and that person knows Saban's scheme well. Offensively, it is an opportunity. Not that they need some reboot on offense. They were great on offense. But it is an opportunity to think outside the box and go outside the family. More so than defense.
1: Well, and what you don't have right now is that Sarkeesian guy that's out there, like the, the Alabama rehab Yeah, that we call it. I, the, that
2: guy's not there. Well, it's Cliff Kingsbury, but well, he's yeah. not going to go back to college. That, that's the, the hot name. No pun intended with old hottie Cliff Kingsbury. Yeah. But that's the name everybody points to and says, is he going to be working with Saban next? And then just propel himself to get a job you know, elsewhere from, from that. I, I don't think that's going to be the case. I'm also going to their football su- so support staff to see how many people we actually know that are just buried, like Butch Jones was for years, as an analyst or on their support staff at Alabama. Here, here's who uh, some of the uh, beat
1: writers are saying. Uh, you got Mike Rodak for uh, alabama.com, AL.com, um, just on their short list of who Alabama will consider, could consider. Jeff Levy, who's the OC at Oklahoma, is mentioned. Buffalo Bills quarterback's coach Joe Brady, who, of course, was at LSU, got the offensive coordinator job at Carolina. Now he's the quarterback's coach in Buffalo. Let me
2: say this about Jeff Lebby. That's, that's pie in the sky. The guy played at Oklahoma. I mean, he, yeah. left, he left Lane Kiffin to go to Oklahoma because that's his alma mater. I, I, don't, I don't see that being an option. There was so much talk about if Brent Venables doesn't work out, would Josh Heupel go back to Oklahoma? I immediately thought, no, Jeff Lebby would get promoted. Before that would happen. <laughs> if they're doing well in offense while he's
1: there. Yes. Um, let's see. Who else did they mention here? Charlie Weiss Jr., who's the co-offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Ole Miss. And, oh, here's an interesting one. Dan Mullen. Ooh. That that makes sense.
2: If That makes a lot of sense. Yes, it does. And it fits our Nick Saban rehabilitation program criteria for a court and his
1: name has not been floated out for anything and it would make total sense that out of nowhere they replace O'Brien with Mullen
2: and it's also if he goes there and has even Bill O'Brien level success I think he might even have more success with his experience in the college game and they win a national championship in one of the next two years how much hotter is his name I mean if Steve Sarkeesian could have what happened at USC and then go to to Alabama and have success, and he could get the Texas, Texas job. job. Could Dan Mullen get a job that level? Probably. I um, mean, he's gonna he's gonna smell a lot better after two years with Nick Saban, like everyone else does for other big time jobs coming open. So, the, stylistically,
1: I don't know if this works. Greg Roman is mentioned, who just left yep. in Baltimore, um, but Roman's more like jam jam packed line of scrimmage. Run heavy. Uh, Jason Garrett's on this list. Adam Gase. He's a former, you know, the New York Jets coach. Former student assistant
2: for Saban at Michigan State. Crazy eyes. Yeah. Adam Gase. Um, Wild eyes. Brian Dayball was there uh, for Alabama. That didn't, that kind of clashed, I think, personality-wise a little bit when he was working for Nick Saban as offensive coordinator. He got out after a year. I think he was at Bama, and then he went back to the NFL after that. Uh, So I hear some of these offensive guys from the NFL and wonder if that would be a personality conflict with the strong-willed Nick Saban. Uh, But I I don't know. I've heard nothing but great things about Greg Roman from people who know him. He's a good dude, really nice guy. I I think that that could possibly work out.
1: Also, a final one, uh, Eagles quarterbacks coach Brian Johnson, who was Mullins' offensive coordinator at Florida and has, of course, worked wonders with Jalen Hurts this season. He's also had college experience with Utah, Houston, and Mississippi State. That's not bad. Previous to working with him at Florida.
2: I was looking at um, Charles Kelly, who was on um, his staff, uh, but he left for for Colorado. I think he's the defensive coordinator now at Colorado. Um, but he just left to go work with uh, with Deion Sanders. But that was a name that, that popped to mind as someone who could possibly call defensive plays.
1: How crazy is the story that came out about uh, – George's Warren McClendon, who was struck by a drunk driver while he was in the ambulance. And the ambulance was hit by a drunk driver the same, well, while he was being transported after the the wreck that killed teammate Devin Willock and recruiting staffer Chandler LaCroix. I mean, that is two accidents in one night. And you've got McClendon, who's going to the Senior Bowl and will honor uh, his fallen teammate who who died in that car accident by wearing his number at the senior bowl next week.
2: It's terrible.
1: That's, I mean, the, the just, the, just I mean, the sheer odds of that where you're in an accident, you survive miraculously. The ambulance that's taken to the hospital. Two of your friends is, are killed. Yeah. The ambulance that's taken to the hospital is hit by a drunk driver on the way. I mean,
2: based on the report, it looked like the drunk driver the 21 year old kid was in reverse. Because he claimed that his car flipped out or something when he went in reverse.
1: Something happened mechanically with his car, and he turned it back on, and he was already in reverse or something, is what he said.
2: Yeah, but he probably just floored it in reverse and hit the – It was was close to downtown He blew a
1: breathalyzer and was arrested. Yeah. Yeah, but crazy story there and how all that. But um, those are the the big headlines from the SEC today. Um, Chad, coming up – Oh, real quick, let's mention Ed Reed. Yes, Ed Reed says that he turned down Jackson State for the Bethune Cookman job. Now we played you his reaction yesterday to how upset he was that he he was not that the offer was rescinded. Reggie Theus is the AD, and Roland Martin was having a guest on from Bethune Cookman. Ed Reed saw this tweet teasing this segment, said he wanted to go on, and then. Went all in on the athletic director, Reggie Theus at Bethune Cookman, said it's all stems from, you know, they on campus, they have had student protests for the living conditions on campus. Ed Reed was ranting last week, going around picking up trash on campus about how filthy the place was. Keep in mind, this was on Instagram Live, and he's ripping apart the conditions on campus, the facilities, all this thing. And it's a, uh, you know, uh, profanity laced tirade which are things that certainly I know his team has certainly heard before but in the religious background of the school they rescinded the offer to him that he never signed. Since then he's gone on Roland Martin's show and he's been discussing how they. he's still trying to make amends and keep the job he still wants the job at Bethune Cookman and says he's going to help the culture overall turn things around. I just think I don't know how you're trying to salvage something that feels like it's, it's so far
2: gone that you're not going to be able to pull it back in. Am I the only one that when I hear Reggie Theus, I think about that Saturday morning NBC show after Say by the Bell, Hang Time, that he was on from 1995 yes. to 1997? I, I heard that this. name and I thought the coach from Hang Time is now the athletics director at Bethune-Cookman. And in fact, he is. He's the head basketball coach and AD. So he wears two hats. So he's the ba- head of the basketball program and the head of the athletic. And Ed Department. Reed said
1: that Dion called him to be the hand that the handpicked selection to replace him at Jackson State, and he said no, he's going to Bethune Cookman.
2: It's a, it's a strange story, and it's one when I see the rant from Ed Reed, it's easy just to say, man, you just can't can't hire this guy now after everything he said about your school and everything else, and now I see the protest on campus and all this other stuff that's going on around the administration and around the university. And I'm thinking, maybe Ed Reed is perfect for this job. Maybe he's the guy to come in and, and call things what they are and help fix things at this HBCU. And he's perfect to lead Bethune-Cookman football. That's where I am right now. Bring the guy back. If he still wants the job that badly, even after all of this, and there's protests on campus, and, I mean, regardless – You've got a Deion Sanders-level amount of attention when he went to Jackson State on Bethune-Cookman football, which otherwise would not have happened. And maybe that spotlight on some things that aren't so good right now at that university and with that program will actually help improve things if you bring them
1: back. I mean, he's also like – he's interviewing publicly for the job to keep it, and he's got the public sentiment on his side. The quote in the interview – about the players that committed to him the week prior before they rescinded the offer. I've got eight kids who committed the week before. These kids calling me, parents calling me, asking me, what are we going to do? I can't get these kids into a, a school. I can't have these kids uncommitted go somewhere else and you're telling me I'm withdrawing? No, I'm not withdrawing. I still want to coach here and coach these kids after all that has, has gone on. That from Ed Reed. And that they're, they're extending an olive branch.
2: I mean, bring the guy back. You went at, after him for a reason. At, at he this accepted point, the job for a I think he's won the job even more so. Yeah, now, now it's almost like he's been challenged, and I think he's even more driven to fix things and to help yeah. the program and to help the school. So, I, look, if I'm, if I'm Reggie Theus, star of Hangtime in the 90s on NBC Saturday mornings, great lineup, <laughs> I'm thinking, I mean, he's looking around and knows the state of whatever's going on at the university, and if things are in disorder – if Ed Reed is that passionate about fixing things and bringing kids to the university, hire him. You're going to do it to begin with. Finish the job. We preview
1: the AFC Championship rematch between the Chiefs and the Bengals. Danon Hughes joins us. He is the analyst for the Kansas City Chiefs Radio Network. We'll preview the matchup. We'll dive into the injury for Patrick Mahomes and how much that affects the overall plan for the AFC title game in KC. That's next on Kick 360. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom
2: Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady,
0: live only on Netflix.
1: Just the third time over the last 35 years we've seen an AFC Championship rematch In back-to-back seasons it feels like it's been more than that because the Patriots represented this so often but the teams and quarterbacks rotated it was just a very small group of them but right now in the AFC you go through Arrowhead Stadium in the Kansas City Chiefs welcome back Outkick 360 rolls on Danan Hughes joins us he's the color analyst for the Kansas City Chiefs radio network Danan appreciate the perspective and time man hope things are well
0: All's good so far. Looking forward to this weekend. Uh, Yeah. Appreciate you guys having me on.
1: All right. So when Mahomes went down, he was hobbled. He was playing through it, uh, went to the sideline, came back out. And then someone, I don't know who, convinced him to go in the locker room and get this checked out. There was like a full hour between the time he did that to when he came back out on the field. Did you think when he went in the locker room, he was going to return?
0: Well, yeah, it was a it was like a soap opera to some extent, not necessarily with all the drama but just the questions as far as how things were unfolding and this is real game time that we're going through this and because I'm in the booth, I have the vantage point right over the our sideline so we're constantly going back and forth with our sideline reporter asking about Patrick Mahomes. I've got my my uh binoculars out looking at Patrick on the sideline. And the one encouraging factor that kept me going and kept me believing that he was going to be back in the game was that he never sat down. Like he sat down for a quick second, but everything else was moving on the sideline. Even while Chad Henney was in the game, he was right next to Andy Reid for most of that time. So I felt like if this ankle is seriously bad, Like, they'd probably strap him down somewhere, and they didn't do that. So I felt like there was a chance. And fortunate for us, if he had to get injured, that it was before halftime, so he was able to go in and get treatment. The other concern was, okay, now that he sits still during halftime for 12-plus minutes, is he going to come out and be stiff? So a lot of encouraging parts came from that, but I was glad that he was able to make it back in the game. I think the Chiefs fans were glad as well.
2: Dana, I know this may surprise you. I did not play in the NFL like you did. I also did not play pro baseball like you did. But I did play sports a lot growing up. And I feel like anytime I see an injury that I've had, your mind immediately Uh goes to, well, here's how I would have reacted. And most of the time it would be I wouldn't be playing the rest of the game. (laughs) And I I had – Playing backyard tackle football threw someone's body over the inside of my leg, and it rolled the leg in that way, but it inverted. Mm -hmm. And I had a severely sprained ankle. My ankle swole up pretty quickly and couldn't walk for a week after that. I'm sure you've either suffered an ankle injury that's similar to that or seen it happen. So what goes through your mind when you see that? Do you revert to your own experience as a player if that's happened? And what is the best-case scenario now? For, for Patrick Mahomes, because I'm sure that thing is swelling and not getting any better this week, at least at this point in the week.
0: So uh, I believe what makes us or makes these guys premier athletes is the level of invincibility that they have. You never believe that any other injury that else has can a- affect you the same, and I feel like that's the case with Patrick Mahomes. I had a high ankle sprain in college. I've had ankle sprains, hamstrings, everything else in the book, Concussions or whatever, uh, with the Chiefs. But I can tell you that when you have it internally and you have that adrenaline in the game, it's different than practice, obviously. But in the game, you feel like you can can battle through anything. As long as I can stand, I can run. As long as I can run, I can cut. I can catch balls. I can do whatever's necessary. And that's kind of what I felt like Patrick Mahomes was, was doing out there you can see that there was a significant difference in his mobility in the second half than it was in the first half, uh, even handing the ball off. There were some stretch runs that he had with uh, Jarek McKinnon in the backfield and Isaiah Pacheco that it seemed like it took everything in his fiber to get the ball to the running back to run off tackle. Uh, never mind the limited mobility and in regards to bootlegs, His drop back. And remember, this is his right foot. So it's his right ankle, which is the plant foot when he drops back. So you have to have all of that going on in your head if you're Patrick Mahomes because you still want to be able to deliver the ball efficiently. So a lot of things, but I feel like he, like he mentioned, he said, I am not, unless they tell me I cannot go out on the field and basically someone takes my helmet. I'm ready to play and battle through it. Now, we've seen him have this same injury. He had the dislocated kneecap a couple of years ago when we went to the Super Bowl. Those are different. Like, this was different because he stayed upright. He got up, he kept moving, and I felt like plus the adrenaline helped him to battle through the rest of that game. But there were, there you take a half of the playbook away once he's injured because his mobility, his improvisation the plays he makes off schedule is part of what makes him magical.
1: Dan and Hughes, our guest on Outkick 360. He's the analyst for the Kansas city chiefs radio network. I saw a poll from Kansas city fans. Uh, I was a bit surprised by the vote on who they would rather play. And it's probably because they get to host the game instead of going to Atlanta, but it was overwhelmingly, everyone was voting for the Bengals. Look, there's not many teams that are confident whenever you're playing Kansas City. Cincinnati's one of them. Uh, they're they're boasting about Arrowhead is now Burrowhead uh, in Kansas City with how much success they've had in recent games and matchups, 3-0 and over the last year. Why do they match up so well against the Chiefs? And what must Kansas City take away in order to allow Mahomes with his immobility, because it's going to be bad, to still be as effective as as we've seen through stretch runs of postseason games that he's played in?
0: So uh, I'll get to your first question first in regards to uh, the Bengals and their confidence, I believe, in going against this team. So the fans, we all wanted the Cincinnati Bengals. I wanted the Cincinnati Bengals in part because of, if I dig down deep into this body, there's still that athlete competitive spirit that's in there, even though I've been from away from the game or on the field since the late 90s. Having said that, I feel like if I was a boxer instead of a football and baseball player, I would always want the rematch. If somebody knocked me out, I want the rematch. I don't want to fight anybody else to get back to this to that point. I would always want the the same guy. And I feel like that's what the mantra is of this team and this Chiefs kingdom. All the fans is like, okay, we want Cincinnati. Yes, we like we love the fact that we can have them at home, but they're like that. They're like that factor that you just haven't been able to get past. And you can take another road uh, to the destination, but you always feel a little bit more, a little bit better when you're having the opportunity to go through that road. So I know that I feel like Cincinnati would be a better matchup. I was asking for this matchup for several weeks as we led into the playoffs because I just have that spirit that I want them again. For them calling it Burrowhead, I mean, that's trash talk. I don't like it personally. I know the Chiefs fans don't like it. He's only won one game of the three games here, and that was last year's AFC Championship. So to, to, to feel like you can call Arrowhead Stadium, Burrowhead. Okay, it's cute, but I think the players are going to take it to heart. There's a lot of talking going on on that side from the Cincinnati Bengals. And, hey, justifiably so. They've been there. They've done that. They've gotten to the Super Bowl. They've beaten us three times. But the, the game will be settled on the field. And I think, I think what we're going to have from our Chiefs fans, a little bit extra spirit from our team uh, because of all of this.
1: What we don't know, and we got a great snapshot last week with the 98-yard drive, is what will Kansas City be like if they have to go with Chad Henney? You've seen him up close. You've seen him play a lot more than we have, because it's always been Mahome's. What should we expect offensively if they've got to go to Henney?
0: Well, what we know about Chad Henney, He's a 15-year pro. He's been a starter, he's been a backup. He's had some successes. But what we know about what he's done with this organization is that he's been extremely efficient. 98 yards, his first time. he's only had two other pass attempts before this game where he got thrown in after Patrick got hurt and didn't have any completions. And to me, that shows the epitome, and I talked to him after the game in the locker room of being a pro. I played with Marcus Allen. Marcus Allen used to walk around, call guys pro. Hey, what's up pro? What's going on pro? And I always knew what he meant, that it was a different aura about that person. It was a different way they approached the game and their professionalism. So with Chad Henney, like you didn't see any kind of chaos. You didn't see any kind of extra concern. They felt like he could move the ball and get them to a win, however way it was necessary if we needed to lean on the run game more or the pass game. He's also been in this situation before. Just a couple of years ago when we played the Cleveland Browns, Patrick Mahomes went down with an injury and Chad had to come in and basically threw a quick out to Tyreek Hill to seal the game in that tight game. I believe that was the divisional round as well. So to me, Chad's been down this road before. And when you talk to everybody in the organization from the players to the coaches, like they don't even, they don't miss a beat in regards to, the confidence that they have in Chad. And if he's necess- if he's needed to to play more than a, a couple of series, to play more than a quarter or so, they feel like they can still get the job done.
2: Travis Kelsey's amazing because even when the opponent knows that he is the ultimate security blanket and can still make big plays, that they seemingly cannot take him away at any point in time. If it's Chad Henney, if, if Patrick Mahomes gives it a go and simply physically can't do it, what is the relationship like with Henny to Kelsey, and is that then the security net type deal for the backup quarterback, given his production with the starting quarterback?
0: So I've I've been I was a quarterback in high school, emergency quarterback with the Chiefs if Montana and the other guys went down, and we were truly truly desperate. Like, and I'm smart enough to know that 87 is my safety valve, so I have to believe that Chad Henney would probably be smart enough to know that if he gets in the game and he has to orchestrate multiple drives, his first option should be 87. Second option should probably be 87. And then he can distribute to the rest of the guys. Probably my third guy would be McKinnon out of the backfield. So these guys, they work together. And even if Chad is not getting reps on the field in practice with Travis Kelsey, he's seeing the film, he's watching the practices. He's going through the mental reps as if he was in those practice reps or in the game. So, Patrick, I mean, uh, Travis Kelsey had, what, 14 targets on the game. At the time that Patrick Mahomes went out, I believe Travis had 10 catches uh, already. So, it's not rocket science. Like, even if I had to be thrust in there, like, I would know, okay, I don't know what this play call is going to be. I don't know where we're going to go with this down and distance, but I do know when I break the huddle, I'm going to find where 87 is and make sure that I give him a few more shots than everybody else.
2: Now I have to ask, as you said you were the emergency quarterback, how many plays in the playbook were for you that you could run as quarterback if you got thrust in the game, and how many of them were passes versus how many were rushes or some form of option that you'd run if you came in?
0: So I would say this, this is back in Marty Schottenheimer days and we were a run heavy team, even though we had the West coast offense. So I'd have to believe that 90% of the plays would be run plays and the other ones would probably be three step drops. So I don't, I don't know if they would have opened up the playbook and, (laughs) and had me run a two minute offense, but I did, I did pride myself on at least knowing the entire playbook from an offensive perspective, that if, if anything was needed, if the sky was falling and both quarterbacks went down and somebody just needed to be serviceable, that I would be prepared for it. But by, make no mistakes. There would not be five-step, seven-step, shotgun, audibles at the line of scrimmage. No Omaha, Omaha from me at all. I'd probably be just handing to Marcus Allen or Kimball Anders.
1: Dana, I I believe the forecast for Sunday in KC is very similar to what we saw in Buffalo a week ago. It's going to be cold, chance of snow. Um, Does the the turf in KC actually benefit Mahomes more, the fact that he's playing on grass, even if it may be frozen? I know they heat that thing. I've stood on Arrowhead before. Mm -hmm. It's not the same as a frozen tundra. Or, yeah. I mean, he's not playing on turf in Atlanta for the AFC title game. That's got to be beneficial for a guy that's going to be trying to work through the pain.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is. If you pull a lot of the players, and I think even earlier this year, people went to Travis Kelsey and some other players and asked about playing on the sports turf versus natural grass. And I was a little bit surprised because I thought with the new innovation and the, the cut up tires and grounded up tires and rubber that people would prefer that sports turf but it's the total opposite as a player not the old school astro turf that I played on but as a player now these guys still want to be on a natural surface and there's as far as the field surface itself there's there's none uh that are better than Arrowhead and how the groundskeepers keep up this turf with the heated system underneath and the infrastructure it's not going to be frozen It actually was about the same weather this past weekend against the Jaguars where we had snow coming down during the game, and it was probably in the middle 30s, and I think that's kind of where it will be. Maybe a little bit colder because the game's in the evening, but these guys would prefer to be on the grass surface of Arrowhead Stadium, and I think it's going to help Patrick Mahomes at least get through the game. He's going to have to deal with some pain, let's face it. He's going to have to deal with some pain, and hopefully it doesn't impact his throwing motion, his abilities to to maneuver in the pocket and protect himself, and also it doesn't tip off the defensive backs. I, I talked about this earlier on another show. When you plant that back foot, the defensive backs usually square up with the receiver, and they can tend to squat on balls or squat on receivers' routes because that back foot is planted by the quarterback. So you don't want to get in a situation where these guys are jumping routes and you get any turnovers because that could, you know, make for a, a bad ending for the Chiefs. So I want them to protect themselves first. I feel like the grass surface is the definitely is definitely the best surface for to do so.
1: We'll get one more matchup discussion with you. I believe that Samaji Piran, not Joe Mixon, had the big day against Casey earlier this year. Yeah. But Kansas City has also, they've rushed it well against Cincinnati in these three losses that we were referring to. What's the battle in the trenches like? Who do you give the advantage to, and why?
0: So uh, yeah, I'd say this: Cincinnati Bengals are, are, are definitely a, a dual threat team. They don't have the uh, necessarily the ability as a rusher from the quarterback position, uh, but they make up for it with Mixon and P Ryan, and they are okay with running it at any place at any time. Uh, this will be a game where I think each team will take their chances. You may see a a few fourth down uh, tries, and that's where the rushing game becomes prominent on third down. If you know you're at the 40-yard line or at the 50-yard line and you're in four-down territory, you are likely going to run the ball on third down because you know you have that extra down to try to get the first down. So that's where those those third-down situations when they were contemplating Uh, running another play on fourth down is where they were really proficient against us in the past. Let's also remember Patrick Mahomes hasn't had the best second halves of games against this Bengals team. In all three matchups, he hasn't thrown a touchdown in the second half. So the fact that we were still in each game, they basically all ended identically with three-point losses, uh, tells you that our run game – can be efficient in the second half and throughout the game. So I feel like maybe with the injury, maybe with the uh, willingness to try to keep Joe Burrow on the sideline, you may see a little bit more run game this week than normally, but the Bengals are good against the run as well. So I think Andy Reid, when it's all said and done, the best player on the field is Patrick Mahomes and you want the ball in his hands more than anybody else, but you also have to be cognizant of the run game that's going to be coming at us to try to keep Patrick Mahomes on the sideline. But the one-two punch with P. Ryan and Mixon, very, very formidable. Each guy can catch the ball out of the backfield. They run the ball extremely well downhill, especially when they're lined up six yards right behind the quarterback, and we're going to have our hands full.
1: And I I said last week, I I felt like going into the game, the matchup against Buffalo, we were going to see the loss of Von Miller really show up for Buffalo. I thought that was the case post-game, too. They could not get pressure on him. Is this the week where, man, they've done great things without Tyreek Hill, but if they had him available, the quick pass game that Mahomes is going to require, this would be a perfect matchup for him. Who steps up in that role?
0: So, yeah, I think it would be an asset. But some people would argue that with Tyreek Hill, we lost those three games. I mean, at least two of them, I should <laughs> okay. say. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think Juju Smith-Schuster is a guy that he's he, he's, he recognizes this Bengal. He was in their same division. Um, he's played physical football. Uh, he's not afraid to go across the middle. I think shallow crosses and those spot routes over the ball – are going to be the outlets for Patrick Mahomes for him to get rid of the ball quickly and then have somebody make a uh, break a tackle and make a play. So to me, to me, you got Noah Gray who came up big last game. You got Jerick McKinnon who's been outstanding catching the ball out of the backfield and those little checkdown routes and swing routes. But I'd also say Juju Smith-Schuster can be that other guy that's going to be able to take a five yard pass and make it into a 10 or 15-yard game, move the chains. And let's not forget Kadarius Toney. Kadarius Toney has slowly kind of got into the mode of that Tyreek Hill factor in our offense where they've gotten him, him, him the ball in space, and he's able to make people miss and take, not necessarily to the extent of Tyreek Hill, where you take a five-yard hitch, make six Buffalo Bills miss, and go for 45 yards. But he's done some nice damage with catching the ball on the sidelines and getting positive yardage. So I think the compliment of guys is going to equate to what maybe we lost with Tyreek Hill.
1: Danon Hughes is the radio analyst for the Kansas City Chiefs. Thanks so much for the perspective, man. Enjoy it. Uh, and, you know, you've got a hell of a team that you get to call on a weekly basis. It's got to be a blast. We're
2: jealous. And congrats on getting to host the game and not have it at a neutral site yeah. in Atlanta. It's even Absolutely. better to have it at arrowhead.
0: I appreciate it, guys. You five straight years hosting the AFC Championship. Incredible. I would have never guessed that that would be possible. So it's been a blessing. Looking forward to one more after this week.
1: All right. Advance, we'll catch up in Arizona. We'll preview the game with you. Thank you. All right. All right. There he is, Dane and Hughes. Uh, great perspective there. Really good. Yeah, absolutely. And you get the sense, like, immobile Mahomes, they're ride or die. It's him. It's not Chad Henney. There's no doubt to him that they're going with Mahomes in the high ankle sprain. It
2: sounds like the only way Mahomes isn't going to play is if he has to check himself out of the game because he knows he's not he can't. Yeah, he can't walk yeah. physically. Coming up, uh, there were two Major League Baseball
1: franchises for sale. Now there's one. This is Outkick 360. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. That according to their team owner. Um, So they were purchased. The Angels were purchased for $183 million in 2003. Five months ago, the club announced they were going to explore options for a sale because they could not come to an agreement with the city. The city terminated the deal that was going to sell Anaheim Stadium to them. So they said, we're going to explore options to sell. Five months later... And an evaluation of 2.2 billion, they're not going to sell.
2: Here's just a question I have: just just top ten payroll, by the way, throwing this out there, okay? Because they they spend money, they go big with certain players, and players like to go there and play, but they just never have any success with those guys. And I'm always two of the greatest players in the game right now. Do we need two teams in LA? Is that really something that we need? Do we need anyone other than the Dodgers in that market? I can think of at least three or four other markets that would love to have the Angels. Uh, we're in one of them right now, if the uh, ballpark could possibly, could magically appear yeah, bring in the Trout right and no spot. here. Let's yeah, go. I mean, I think uh, the city of Nashville would love to have the Angels. They'd love to have the Rays. I mean, there's, point being, there are places that this team could go that, d- that they don't have a team. <laughs> Whereas LA has their team. I mean, I know the Angels have been there for a while, but when I think of New York, I think, okay, Yankees and Mets, that makes sense. When I think of L.A., I don't really think about give the Angels much thought. That is a Dodgers town, and I don't think it's a city that needs a second Major League Baseball team, even with its size. I just don't think it's necessary. Not that a Major League Baseball team is necessary for any one city, but let's give another place a crack. That's... That's all I'm saying. That, hey, they have the right to sell or not to sell. But let's just give another place a crack at a team and see how it goes. Uh, Marino, the owner, was
1: like, uh, it became clear that during this process, which, by the way, is five months, that we have unfinished business. And, feel we can make a positive impact on the future of the team and the fan experience. Unfinished business meaning what? Uh, actually making the postseason? Uh, Otani and Trout and, or, or bust. Uh, no, Otani's under a one-year contract, right? Moving forward. Um, yeah, I, I'm surprised based on the, the way the deal fell through in the stadium that they aren't just selling the team and trying to make out like Banshees for $2.2 billion. By the way, the only franchise that remains up for sale currently are the Washington Nationals. They're going to fetch somewhere between $2.5 and $3 billion per front office sports. So the Nationals are available. That's
2: it. Angels are staying, so they're not leaving. Gene Autry, the old singing cowboy star, owned the team originally. <laughs> yeah. Did it go straight from Gene Autry, uh, Gene Autry to Moreno? I think there's only been one change of ownership in their history. He I, got the team in the beginning and owned it. I think he just sold to Artie Moreno. I believe there there may be someone in between, um, but I say all that to say, who cares? <laughs> Let's let's get this team out of LA. Well, yeah. That's that's my hope with the Angels. It doesn't sound like they're going Hey, anywhere. we're going to run it back, Hutton. We we've, we've got a lot left on the table the ownership says, which could mean we're not going to be in 4th in the AL West. We're going to get out of that 4th place spot and move up to 3rd this year. <laughs> that's our unfinished business. We have two of the biggest stars in the game and we're not going to finish in 4th this year. We're going to move up. This is the year, Hutton. This 184 is the year. million and now 2.2
1: billion. It bought the franchise for more than what Lamar Jackson was offered in guarantees prior to the start of the NFL season. Tough.
2: Oh, my apologies. They were third in the AOS last year. 73-89. Uh-huh. and 89. Same result. That's Irrelevant. what those top stars got them. 16 under 500. Congrats. Headlines
1: when we return, plus David Hookstead.